Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your host in this episode of the Humanizing the Narrative podcast. Captain Tristan Tricarico has been a member of the Baltimore City Fire Department since 2011 and currently serves as the captain of Truck Company 8. His previous assignments include the Fire Academy, Truck 23, Engine 8, and Truck 6. Tristan is a member of the Special Operations Team and an adjunct instructor at the Fire Academy, as well as an instructor for the state of Maryland. He holds a master's degree in organizational leadership and bachelor's degree in emergency management, both from Waldorf University. Tristan, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me for this conversation, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm confident that our listening audience will benefit from your perspective on leadership and human performance under pressure. So I'd like to start the conversation by exploring your upbringing. You're the son of a retired FDNY fire officer. What was your upbringing like, and when did you know what you wanted to do with your life? So it was interesting being brought up uh, by a fire officer in that regard. I grew up in a small town on Long Island, Suffolk County, uh, called Mount Sinai. And it was just a very safe place to live. Great place. We moved there when I was young. And then I would spend the weekends and the summers in the South Bronx in the early 90s with uh, with my father. And so the things that I would see in the South Bronx, obviously, you know, were very different by con- in contrast from Suffolk County. So I'd be in a place where I would see kind of two worlds. And on the weekends, when I would go into work with my father in the summers, I would hang out with the kids out in front of the firehouse and do things in the South Bronx with the neighborhood kids uh, within reason, of course, you know, staying close to the firehouse. And I would be exposed to things in a world, in a place like the suburbs on Eastern Long Island, you, you would never even know existed. So it was very interesting, but the work ethic was probably the best thing about it. You know, my father would make sure I had a mop in my hand. He would tell me I had no seniority at a young age and he would have me mop the floors and he would have me doing the housework and, and participating and not just, uh, not just sitting around, you know, drinking soda and watching TV. Um, just given the nature of the firehouse, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV with the guys. And uh, I could still tell you the rules of the firehouse where, you know, you don't go near the windows at night, um, things like that, you know, just an exposure to, to a life that, Otherwise, I would not have been exposed to until I actually joined the fire service. And beyond, I guess, finding it interesting or enlightening at a young age, you you were intrigued and, and thought it might be something you wanted to do someday when you grew up? Yeah, my father still has photos, which, you know, were recently published, as you know, of me wearing his helmet as a baby and, and you know, being completely enthralled with the fire service. And a lot of people are aware that I'm I'm a huge buff. You know, I love a good power call siren. You know, I I love the fire service and I have at a young age. And just like anyone else, I went through a period in my teens where I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do and that kind of thing. And and I think anybody who knew me at a young age kind of knew that I was going to pursue this type of career. And I'm lucky enough that I landed the career. You know, at one point in my life, I wasn't sure if I was going to get hired. I wasn't sure if this was going to come to fruition. 
And I was fortunate enough to land that career. And, and as I get older, the more people I know who wanted the career and could not obtain it for one reason or another, uh, whether, it, you know, whatever the reason may be, makes me very grateful for the fact that I landed the career that I've always wanted and I've landed the career that I've always loved. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned pictures. So there's a picture circulating the web at present of a young boy. He's wearing a fireman's helmet, probably the 80s. Your father's actually in the picture, and it was taken on the roof of a tenement in the South Bronx where guys are operating uh, a hose line onto what appears to be an adjoining building, presumably a vacant. Any chance that's you? So we're not sure. You know, we've seen the photo a, a lot, and uh, because we can't be sure that it's that it is us, you know, in that regard, it's like you don't want to say it's us and then have it not be. Sure. Like, yeah, that's definitely us. And then someone surfaces and they say, "Oh no, that that's that's me," you know. But so, yeah, but yeah, it's not that important. You know, it's not the the credit for that is not that important. You know, it's we have our memories in hindsight. You know, it's always easy to look at things in hindsight. And I wish I would have taken more pictures. I do have some great pictures of the FDNY in the '90s and uh, you know, pre nine eleven that I'm glad I took. But I wish I would have taken more, especially at that age. But at that age. Unlike now, pictures are not at the forefront of your mind. But you can say, though, definitively that experiences like that or exposure like that were certainly part of your, your upbringing. Absolutely. Absolutely. At a young age, you know, my father would bring me in and show me what a burned out apartment looked like. An example would be when um, my father made lieutenant. First, he went to Manhattan. And then after he went to Manhattan, he went to Brooklyn. And when he was covering in Brooklyn, he would take me with him a lot. You know, he was working at engine 283 and they had a, a second alarm right at Eastern Parkway in Utica. It's an inter, it used to be an interfaith building. I don't know what it is now. It was a Payless shoe store at the time. And it was, keep in mind, I was young, so it might be magnified, but it was just fire out of like all these windows. It seemed like it was three blocks long, but it was probably, you know, half a block. It's, it's a pretty large building coming out the second floor. And John Flynn was driving engine 283 and he would just hand me a hose and send me up the street and I had gloves on. And that was like the first time I really got to operate. And, uh, I got, I was hanging, I was in crown Heights. So like I was hanging out with all the, you know, the local kids and they were like, this kid knows everything about firefighting. And really it was like, you know, you know, you're, you're like, you think it's the coolest thing in the world. You know what I mean? Like you feel like you're really a part of something there. And, you know, I remember that the duration of that incident from the time that they got the alarm to, the time that my father came out and I started telling him and he was like, you didn't do any of that stuff. And, and the driver Flynn had to advocate for me. And, uh, you know, it was just a cool experience. And I would say, going back to what you asked, that was probably the moment that I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. What, what a great story. And what a, what a great time to not only, I mean, guys from your father's generation, what a, what a great time to have been a fireman or a fire officer. And, and what a, what a cool time. Uh, to have been the son of a fireman or fire officer, we had the opportunity to come to work and, and ride with your your father and you know, go to jobs and have like a front row seat, man. Yeah, and as I got older, he put me more. He would get me more and more involved, and um, I can remember like a, like steam leaks, you know, in vacant apartment buildings, and when he was in Flatbush, and he would have me go in and do a primary, and I and I was like all nervous, trying to do well, and. I'm thinking it's just, I mean, it's just steam. And these guys are like walking around, you know, and I'm thinking, man, these guys are just, these guys are like mountains of men, you know, like they're just incredible. And uh, 
I'm very grateful for the experience. I'm very grateful to have been raised and, and brought up around those types of men who they, they built the foundation for our generation now for the fire service. Yeah, without question. And, you know, your father uh, spent an overwhelming majority of his career in, in three really great places, right? 50 and 19 on Washington Avenue in the South Bronx, uh, 255 and 157 on Rogers Avenue, Flatbush, and then uh, finished out his career as a captain at 252. Yeah, he had a few stops along the way in between promotions, things like that. Like I said, covering in Manhattan. Post 9-11, he was put at 101 Truck. He was trying to help rebuild the company. And as you know, they lost seven guys on that September morning. And it was hard. It was hard to watch him go through all of those things, but it taught me a lot. And, you know, I have along the way forgotten those lessons that I got to watch him go through, which was the struggles of the job isn't always, it's not always what what we think of it. You know, it's not always the the morale and the kitchen table and the, and the jobs and you know it, it's a large beatdown and it, sometimes you just got to take it on the chin and show some resiliency and get through it and it's easier said than done it's easy to right now i'm pleased with where i am i'm, I'm having a good time but when you're in it, it it's hard to see through you know it's hard to see through the mud and, and he's always there to remind me of that and sometimes uh, i'm a little more reluctant to hear him than i should be but he, he's always been there to kind of remind me that he didn't get promoted to lieutenant and go straight to 157. He always liked where he was, but there was always somewhere where he got promoted and, and maybe he was covering at a house where, where he didn't want to be. And he would say, all right, this is, you know, they're, they're testing me, you know, they're going to remember how I handle this. And he would always remind me of that along the way when, uh, when I was getting fed up with the bureaucracy. Yeah. You know, what a great mentor and what a great education and, an upbringing that served you well and continues to serve you well. So then you you would come on the FDNY uh, as an EMS provider in, in hopes of transitioning to the fire department and following your father's footsteps. That plan didn't exactly materialize as you had hoped when the civil service list that you were on was thrown out and hiring was, was frozen for five years. Would you mind revisiting that experience and your, your subsequent pivot to the Baltimore City Fire Department? So I, I had moved down to Maryland to do a, a live-in program for the University of Maryland in Prince George's County, which kind of was where I got my exposure to Baltimore City and to Maryland. And thankfully, Pete Lund, rest in peace, he had influenced my father to kind of pivot me in that direction. Like, right, like um, I wasn't a great student in high school. I definitely was not going anywhere um, on a scholarship or anything like that, but I knew what I wanted to do. So they, they kind of pushed me in that direction. I got hired in January 2008 for FDNY EMS, and it was equal parts uh, great, and it was equal parts miserable, just like any job. But the big thing was a level of maturity that I, I don't think I was willing to put up with a lot of the stuff that was happening there because I had kind of seen where I wanted to go, and I was impatient. Um, that being said, you know, those guys in, EM, in FDNY EMS, they don't get enough credit. They don't get treated all that well, at least as far as uh, I have seen in my experiences, you know, sitting on street corners, things like that. And uh, after a couple of years, you know, I, I was holding out because obviously through, you know, through the obvious connections, I was basically told like, look, man, just keep your nose clean and you're going to be in one of the first classes out of this uh, next class that comes out in 2009. And um, on my birthday, they announced that they were going to throw out the list and they were going to get rid of it. So. I was devastated. I mean, just completely wrecked, devastated. I was living in Queens 
and I just, uh, I just, I did like a Forrest Gump thing. Like I was so, I was so upset. I just went running and I came back like hours later and my wife, like, you know, Beyonce at the time, my wife was like, where, like, where have you been? What's going on? So I called one of my closest friends who was working in Baltimore city at the time and was just kind of venting to him about the whole thing and saying like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I can't get stuck in this job. That was my fear. Right. Cause the, FDNY and for context, has... and for context, how, how old were you? 23. Okay. So I was young, but I'm worried, you know, the 29, if they say they're not hiring again for five years and that puts me at 27, 27, 28 around that age. And so now I'm worried that the 29 year old cutoff is going to take effect and I'm going to get, um, for lack of a better term, stuck in FDNY EMS. Not that, you know, I have a great respect for the guys who work there. They're, I still consider them the top notch EMS providers in the world. Uh, I've seen it firsthand. You, you know, I work with great EMS providers, uh, and I'm not taking anything away from them, but they're above anything in the world, in my opinion, just because of their exposure and the things that they're willing to take on. That being said, like I was saying before, I called a friend of mine venting to him. He worked in Baltimore city and he said, look, you know, why don't you take the test, man? Like we go to fires where, you know, it's a great place, you know, yeah, you got to ride the ambulance every now and then, but it's not that big of a deal because the payoff is you go to fires. And I didn't know much about Baltimore except for federal Hill where all the bars were. So I started doing some research and it was when the websites were like first starting to come out and uh, you know, the rest is kind of history with it. I took the test and the biggest thing was, you know, my father, my greatest influencer when it comes to, especially when it comes to the fire service, him and I are driving around. We were in what I didn't know at the time was 14 engines area, which is now an area that we cover that my company covers thinking back. And he's looking around and he's like, this is, this looks like Brooklyn in the eighties to me. And he looks at me and he says, if you get a phone call to work here, you definitely need to work here. He said, these places like this don't exist anymore. Right. And you know, that was it. After that, it was like, I got to work in Baltimore. So I went back. I worked for um, Prince George's County, Maryland for a short period as a dispatcher. And eventually, you know, very quickly got hired into the fire department. And then when Baltimore city called me uh, in 2011, that was it. I, I took off and that was it. You know, I've had days where I, where I, regret it. And I've had days where I don't, you know, it's just like anything else. It peaks and valleys. Morale always peaks and valleys. Sure. So you, you then joined the ranks to the Baltimore city fire department in 2011 and you were initially assigned to truck company 15 on the East side of the city, you know, having had an extensive exposure to the fire service, the FDNY, uh, and then your, your volunteer service in, in Prince George's County. What was your rookie experience like in, in the Baltimore City Fire Department? And was it what you had anticipated or expected or was it, was it different? So yes and no. My first day of getting my assignment, I, I went over to the firehouse and I met the captain. And the biggest thing I remember was standing out in front of the firehouse with him. And he's got his hands in his pockets. It's no big deal. He, had, you know, he has time on. He's still on the job. And I'm looking around at this this impoverished neighborhood and a single truck that just sits in the middle of the block. And I'm thinking, this is everything I've ever wanted, you know, and, and it didn't take me long to get a fire. And you know, the crew was outstanding. My first acting man, Jerry Smith, whom I know you're very familiar with, he was outstanding and he trained me 
every day, all day, every day. And I always joke and say that at 11 o'clock at night, he would be like, go get the large area search rope. You know, and I'm very tremendously grateful for that. Grateful is it doesn't even scratch the surface. But that said, it was also interesting because you grow up around a specific culture of the fire service. And then when you get to, when, when I came to Baltimore, it was like the culture was, it was way different. It was more different than I could have imagined. It was more different than, than I anticipated. And the things that were like common practice in New York, small things, you know, small things like in New York, most guys stop and pick up bagels on their way in, like that kind of thing. Whereas in Baltimore, you know, unless you're on, if you're on overtime, then you absolutely do that. And so those were the small things that I had to kind of anticipate. And then operationally, it was more different than anything I could have imagined when it came to operations, um, more aggressive. It was faster. You think, you know, what's going on. You think, you know, until you're in, the, in that position and you're like, wow, this is a lot quicker and a lot more aggressive. And these guys are really smart and making decisions on the fly that I couldn't even anticipate I, that weren't even on my radar. And so it was humbling. It was humbling and it was intense and I wouldn't have traded it for the world, but it was also different because after a very short period, after about a year, truck 15 was disbanded along with squad 11 for budget cuts. So then I was sent to another company and, uh, I, and kind of bounced around a little bit. And so the, I kind of went from being the rookie to the rookie to the rookie. And after I went for a short period to another company, I wound up at eight engine, which wound up having a ton of influence on, on it still remains a ton of influence on my career. And uh, it was just interesting to see the disbandment and kind of get that punch in the gut early, so early in your career. So for lack of better words, you're almost on like a modified rotation, right? A little bit. Yeah watching the members of the company that I was that I looked up to, you know, like two guys who worked together for 15, 20 years or something like that, just shake hands and part ways because of something out of their control and watching some people handle it with grace and others not so much. It was very telling and it was just like a tremendous exposure so early on. It was almost like that naivete that you get as a rookie was, was taken right out of the gate. And that's okay. I was always, I was taught at a young age that when it comes to civil service agencies, you're a number first, that the, the brotherhood is what cares about you. And that's it. And uh, I got to see that. I got to see that very quickly. I appreciate that, uh, that insight. So you, you mentioned Jerry, Jerry Smith, who were some of the other firefighters and fire officers who were influential in your development, particularly in your, your younger years? Jerry Smith still plays a huge role in that. And as I was thinking about this question, something that I realized was that, like, I've had a lot of great officers and I've had a lot of officers that, that are still, uh, still in my life that still influence me. You know, Brian Minatoli, uh, Chief Bull, Chief Van Gelder, you know, this, a lot of these guys, Chief Rudisil, these guys that are still in my life that are, are influencing me and, and some not because of retirements, but a lot of the people who have influenced me are not of rank in the sense of like, they're not captains and they're not chiefs, you know, people who are EVDs and people who are firefighters and the largest influencers I would say have been uh, at, we have a first acting position, as you know, and it's like the senior man position. And I would say the largest influencers have been for me, 
those first acting people, uh, even today, even as a captain. Um, it's a very bottom-up approach. You know, Josh Drexler is a name that, uh, and Sean Davis are two names that I want to make sure that I mention when it comes to that because those guys are just, they, uh, they, they taught me a ton about both operations, but mo most importantly, in the firehouse, how to handle things and, and how, to, how to do the right thing um, without compromising your integrity ever. I mean, I could go on. I could go on and on about different people. There's a, a slew of people. And I'm lucky that I'm still surrounded by people who push me. You know, Kyle Stevens is someone I'd be remiss not to mention. He's always pushing me. All these guys that I've, that I've mentioned are people that push me personally and professionally on a regular basis. And they, re they remind me to stay focused on the mission when, when I forget that. When, I, when, I, you know, when you start to allow your morale to get low and the stress to build and you lose sight of what's important. I mean, it's great that you guys have a tribe that's as strong as it is, particularly in light of the fact that you you navigate an, an array of, of obstacles, you know, many of them that we, we don't necessarily navigate or haven't, at least in recent decades here in the SDNY, uh, because we do enjoy the, the resource, you know, abundance that we, we do. And well, that's something, back. Jason, and I'm sorry to jump in again, but... Uh... no. That's something actually that I'd be remiss not to mention as well, is that I, I was very fortunate to have had such an exposure to, to your job as well, you know, and, and some of the firefighters who have influenced my career and who I've been able to call and bounce things off of, like Cameron Peak and Wayne Pyatt and Mike Gov and Eric Svahovec and guys from your company, or at least who were at the time at your company at 252, those guys that, that worked with my father were a tremendous influence to me growing up. Joey DiBernardo, God rest his soul. You know, these were guys that I looked up to. These were guys that at a young age, not just as a firefighter, as a young man, I was able to call and bounce things off of and talk about when I was having issues. You know, if you're having an issue with a boss or you're having an issue, you're not sure how to handle something. These were guys I was able to be completely candid with. And it was great to have people outside the organization where you know you can talk candidly. And I, they're not going to, they don't know who I'm talking about. So I can just say, I got this guy and he's X, Y, and Z, and this is how it's being handled. And they can say, well, you know, look, man, you know, you're not handling it well. I can tell you that right now. And that was tremendous for, for me and in my development. Yeah, you make several great points. And, uh, you know, it's pretty neat. We, we share, you know, several of the folks that have been influential in your development have been equally influential in, in mine you know, invaluable resources. And I, and I think that one of the points that you, you make, uh, it's almost become cliche within the leadership under fire team and, and network is, you know, these, these are the types of people that not only make us better firefighters and better fire officers, but probably perhaps mo most importantly, they make us better people. Absolutely. And, and you and I have had this conversation where we always say leave work at home, leave home at work or vice versa. I, I didn't say that right. It doesn't matter. But you can't, you know, they, they bleed into each other. Mm -hmm. You know, people, when you're stressed out at home, you're going to, you're going to bring it to work and vice versa. And having the influence of people to, to make you better at your job or that's going to make you better at home and, and vice versa. I don't want to try saying it again because I'll say it wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. So after serving for several years in the firefighters rank, you were promoted to lieutenant and more recently captain, and you have continued to work 
in, in active service companies while also taking a very active role in several of the Baltimore City Fire Department's training programs and initiatives. And the BCFD is renowned for having a mission-oriented culture uh, despite serving a city that is no stranger to violence, severe poverty, tens of thousands of vacant buildings that you, you, you'd referenced, and common cuts to vital fire department resources, which you had, you had touched on. You know, training and motivation remain imperative, but require an adaptive mindset, particularly in a city that navigates the challenges uh, that Baltimore does. What's really the mindset and the leadership philosophy that you have cultivated given your involvement in, in training and the fact that you're presently serving as a, as a company commander? Well, the mission has to always come first. It's very easy to get caught up in the bureaucracy. And the reality of it is that there's people who are, there's people who are firefighters who are built on experience and who, who are seeing the mission. And then there's people, everybody has a boss. And then there's the people who are looking out for the budget and, and that's their job. They're looking out for the budgets and they're looking out for how, how do we continue the firefight, the fire department to make it survive. The mindset that I try to maintain is that at the end of the day, it's all about us. It's all about when we come to work, the most important thing we do is go to fires and emergencies. The rest is, is not unimportant, but it's not as important. So the biggest thing that we have to do is we have to make sure that we're good at going to fires and emergencies and that we're prepared to go to fires and emergencies. Fires being the most important thing that we can do because of the obvious risk that we take when we go to them. And, you know, we've obviously, we've adjusted our vacant building policies and, and I don't, I don't disagree with, with that. And I'm not here to talk about that at all. But that being said, you know, we can't be risk averse. So the best way to make your members safe is to give them that experience. And the best way to give them that experience is through adequate training and adequate um, exposure to the buildings and being out on the street and, and looking at these buildings and talking about them and training the newer members. And that's how a lot of those little need leadership nuggets, if you sit down and try to just give someone all of the leadership lessons you've had, they're going to zone out. They're going to start to glaze over. But if you take them out and you start talking about them and you get the other members who might be a little complacent because they're burnt out or morale is low, it involves them and it just, it kind of like builds everyone up a little bit, gets them a little more active, gets them talking and gets them into the job a, a little bit more. And in a situation where morale is, is very commonly low, you feel like the stress is building. It's a good way to keep the mindset and keep the philosophies at the forefront with the members. I appreciate that. And kind of building on that, those themes, you have become a, a serious student of human performance, we call it optimization in recent years and have fervently advocated that your job build its own human performance program. And it, it looks like the Baltimore City Fire Department is gonna do exactly that and formally launch a human performance program in 2024. More on a on a personal level, you know, as a as a fire officer, what aspects or or tenets of human performance optimization resonate with you? in an urban department that navigates the volume of challenges that your, your job does? I would say above all else, resiliency. And resiliency can be very, um, very subjective depending on the context, but the resiliency is basically to 
maintain that steadfast focus towards towards a mission and to remember that this is all bigger than you you know it's not about credit it's not about resumes inevitably you're going to find that there are going to be firefighters in situations where they're going to be it's a life or death situation and how do we prepare people for that and for myself i don't want to be the person that lets everybody else down and that might sound like it's a little heavy but I don't want something that I could control such as my physicality or my mental resiliency to affect the situation negatively. So main, maintaining that, you know, it's like the deep survival mentality from the book, Deep Survival. You wanna maintain that, that outlook, that certain outlook that's like the survival, that survivalist's mentality to make sure that you're moving forward and staying mission focused all the time. Yeah, I appreciate that. So if I may, I'm going to ask you to share a little bit of insight into some of the routines or the regimen that you use to maintain a, a very high level of, of physical fitness, despite the, all of the things that you have competing for your time, both at work and away from work, you know, as, a, as an active father. Can you kind of walk us through your approach to, to maintaining a high level of physical fitness? Yeah, I try to keep as much balance as I can, but I try to move for endurance at least three times a week, whether it be schedule permitting an intense run or just uh, throwing 40 pounds on your back and then rucking for a few miles and lifting weights in, you know, several times a week as well, because of the fact that you have to have a, a certain amount of strength to stay on top of our job, to stay on top of just life, it's life in and of itself. But the biggest thing is I try to take an hour a day. Uh, whether I'm at work, work is a little more difficult. I try to do something every day, a minimum of 20 minutes, I would say a maximum of about an hour. And, you know, the movement is one thing. And I could go I could go in depth about the movement and actual exercise. But the biggest thing is all the other habits. And look, I, I'm a huge fan of a good cigar. I love a good dinner out with my family. And, and I'm definitely not going to turn down a chocolate chip cookie that my wife makes. But all the other decisions such as, you know, what's more important in the moment? Am I going to, do I need to sleep or do I need to move? And knowing the difference between the two is, is tremendous. And a lot of times if I can, if I know I can sleep in a little bit tomorrow, I'll, I'll gird a little bit of sleep today so that I can get out there and I can do some movement and I can get that time in. And it kind of slows you down as well. Being able to get up a little earlier, get out be in the quiet. There's no kids. There's no phone calls. There's no internet. There's no social media. Social media is a big thing. I try not to touch until later in the day or later in the morning. It's kind of like a pollutant social media. <laughs> and uh, sure. I hate to say that, but as you get out there, you know, you get out there and it makes you kind of slow down and just concentrate on what you're doing right now. And it, it kind of calms all of the anxieties that you might have for the tasks that you have later in the day, which will resonate throughout the day. And once it's done, you don't have it hanging over your head. And I, I, like I said, I can go deeper into the habits and we can go into the ice baths if you want. But I don't know if you know, the audience wants to hear that. <laughs> yeah, my, my observation has been that you're, you're extremely disciplined in your approach and just lifestyle in, in, in general. And that you're, you're very deliberate. You maintain a high level of commitment to your physical I, could argue mental overall health right to the extent that 
one of the things I found really, really impressive was that when you guys came up, so you guys came up from, from Baltimore to go through the week-long FDNY Advanced Firefighter Victor Removal Course at the Rock at, at the FDNY's Fire Academy, despite the fact that you knew the, the scenarios were going to be particularly grueling, you were still up and early each day and went out for a pretty demanding run because it was part of your routine, correct? Yeah, so I made sure that I, I didn't – I gauged it back a little bit, you know, um, and this go, kind of goes back to knowing where you have to stand for the day. Like, I knew it would be an intense day. I knew that I didn't have the time. You know, if I wanted to get up and go run five miles, which is usually the goal, I, I knew I would have to be up at 3.30 in the morning. I'm running through Queens, which is where we were staying, and – you know, I, I just, I didn't have the time to try to put down 45 minutes uh, of, uh, of running, but I did have 10 to 20. So I would do, you know, two miles a little faster than I maybe would have done the, the, a five mile pace and then come back and, you know, take my quick shower and, and get on with, uh, get on with my day. And, you know, one of the things, this might sound cliche, but one of the things that always motivates me to make sure that I am out there physically preparing is the fact that I have had the tests of those physical, of that physical preparation coming in, coming to fruition and uh, not just on a professional level, on a personal level, I've got two adventurous little boys. And if I ever let my physicality not be able to defend them or help them, which we recently had happen, um, you know, it could be, it could mean the, the greatest tragedy of your life, which would be, you know, to lose a child. And that's kind of one of my biggest uh, motivators is being able to protect my family and being able to protect my sons, which, like I said, you know, they were recently, last year, they were pulled out by a riptide, both of them. And uh, thank God they're okay. They're here. And it got a little, it got a little scary. It got a little nerve wracking there for a moment, but it was really at the end of the day, it was the physical and mental preparation that I had been doing leading up to that. That was the reason that uh, all three of us were able to get out. Well, pretty powerful. You know, you make a great point. If you're going to live a life of service, you'd be willing to assume risk, you know, for those who were entrusted to serve at work and then those who were entrusted to, to raise it at home. But physically, you got to be well suited, well suited for the challenges that, that come our way. But I'd like to transition for, for a moment speaking of, of particularly grueling and, and, and rigorous experiences, the, the Stricker Street fire. So on the morning of January 24, 2022, Baltimore City Fire Department units responded to a dwelling fire at which a catastrophic collapse occurred relatively early in the fire operation, leaving three members trapped. And despite a Herculean effort, all three members perished. And those members were Kelsey Sadler, Kenna LaCoya, and Paul Buttram, your unit responded to and operated at the collapse alongside several other units. Is there anything you learned or, or perhaps changed your mind about regarding human performance under extreme pressure at, at complex fires? Yeah, so um, with Kelsey, Kenny Lacayo, and Paul, obviously it was an extremely difficult and long duration incident. I would say this, the biggest lessons I learned or like you said, changed my mind about were, so the first thing, and obviously I've had a lot of time to reflect on that. We talk a lot about RIT in the fire service. We talk a lot about 
just the operational. There's a lot of teachings of RIT. All right, I'm just going to, this might be unpopular. There's a lot of people out there teaching rapid intervention techniques that are, that are ineffective that because they've never been in the situation. One experience does not equate to all experiences. So that's the biggest thing I learned. Everything fell apart for us. Um, everything we did to try to get to, you know, every time we tried a method that we knew as something that would work, that we had in our, you know, proverbial toolboxes as a group, because there was just tremendous people I was surrounded by. Um, these guys, I, I can't say enough good things about them. And collectively as a group, every time we tried something new, it, it would, obviously it would not work. And so there is no one way of doing things. And so there's all of the rapid intervention techniques that were, that were taught, you know, you can't just say, all right, this is how we do it. Because what if that time you can't access a waist strap or what if, you know, we don't have this tool or we don't have that, or, you know, things aren't going to always be readily available. I would say as far as human performance and under extreme pressure, it felt like we were all just talking and again, it probably, it might've been that way because the people that were in there, I mean, some of the most tremendous human beings that I've ever met in my life were in there and were in there that day. And I maintain that. And these guys, you know, we always, we always talk about how we're, you know, we're all, we're, we're brothers, you know, we're, we're all brothers at this point because of this and i would not trade the relationships that i've built because of that for anything except for maybe except for bringing back our friends the biggest thing i learned about human performance was the amount of mental gaps afterwards there are huge holes in our memories and there are huge things that, of reactivities that happened after that i noticed with the entire group uh, myself, uh, and I can only speak to myself, but I've had people come up to me and say, yeah, you know, we had a conversation right after, and uh, well, we talked about one, two, and three, and I don't remember any of it. I don't remember a single thing about it. But under the actual pressure, it was, it felt like what we, you know, what we often talk about is the flow state, where things, it was, we were all just moving, and we were all just working, and nobody was panicking, and we were staying focused on what we had to do in that very moment. And the guys who were in there, like I said, they did such a tremendous job of maintaining their tenacity and their professionalism. I mean, to the point that, that they had to be physically removed. They, they couldn't, when they were told you got to get out, it's time after several hours of working after about two hours a little over two hours of working in there working hard at you know at maximum capacity they still had to be physically removed and i think you know you hit the nail on the head with the herculean effort and these were some of the things that uh that i realized about that i don't know if I, i've kind of talked in circles or not about it but you know obviously it's still it's a little difficult to talk about but it's an important thing to talk about. It's important thing to talk about because this is what we prepare, prepare for, excuse me. We go to work and we often think like we're going to get a fire and it's either going to be a room or 
it's going to be the whole dwelling and we're going to just pull out and, and you know, we're all going to eat hot dogs. But this is what we need to be prepared for is when there's a catastrophic event and we lose members and we've lost a lot of members, unfortunately, in the last two years. And uh, we've seen in that, in light of that, we have seen just tremendous heroism from our membership and people that are people that operate under, under pressure and people that can operate under stress, like nobody I've ever seen. And I'm not a Marine, I'm not a military guy, but I would put the people who have operated in both of our line of duty incident, major line of duty incidents in the last two years up against absolutely anybody in the entire world. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate all of that. I, I think it's, I think it's fair to say those events infrequent as they are, which is a good thing. They rival combat in terms of the intensity of the experience, the physical, the mental, the, the emotional, and I would argue even the moral requirements to continue to operate and fight in an environment as complex as that, you know, where people that you, you truly love are in a bad way and where friction is just inordinate. And I think you might agree with, we've talked about these types of events at length, but, you know, would you agree that those experiences are even harder than you, you, you imagined, but it's kind of odd, like they're hard in ways that you, you didn't necessarily anticipate. Would you agree? Absolutely. Really, it's the aftermath of the incident, right? Um, you ride the adrenaline of it. You ride for a relatively longer than you would think. And then when you go through the adrenaline dump, it's like, you know, it's like nothing that you've really ever felt. And the challenges, you know, in the moment, it didn't feel like the, the challenges were very cut and clear, right? The objective was cut and dry. The challenges were cut and dry. It's afterwards, you know, when you start to go through and there's different types of, you know, competitive grief and there's different types of, of things that, you know, really the guys who operated are the ones who just have to stick together. And, you know, the people who have been in those situations who can really talk to it, they're the ones that have to stick together in this and you have to be there for each other. Bringing the dog around was cool. They brought the dogs to the firehouses. I'd always rather pet a dog than talk to a stranger. But, uh, you know, the the implementation of these things, of the challenges and, and helping out afterwards are good. But the challenges of the stress and the adrenaline dump and everything else is just something that people can't understand unless they've been through it in my eyes. And that might be a little arrogant or even ignorant to say. But that's, you know, that's my perception of it, because I can see where people, especially in light of having our second line of duty death incident on Linden Heights Avenue recently in, on October 19th, you can kind of see where people are going. You can read the situation a little bit better because it's like, I remember this and I remember being exactly where that person was. And this is, you know, they, they need a little bit of space or maybe I'll, maybe I'll just give them a little hand here and just kind of nudge them in the right direction. You know, it might be time for you to talk to someone or it might be time to go out and do something that distracts you, you know, go to a shooting range or go shoot basketball, you know, think something like that. So it's very interesting. The challenges that come after are very interesting. And all of the challenges come while battling the bureaucracies. And when you're raw, 
the bureaucracies seem like they're an easy target for you to attack. You know, it's easy for you to get very upset with those types of things. And like I said, it's, you can navigate, you can really watch people navigate grief and help them anticipate if you've ever been through that situation before. And that's what helped me a lot. I had a firefighter from your job reach out to me who was on the Father's Day collapse. Not long after this, um, he had a very similar situation and he helped me tremendously. Uh, a rescue four firefighter who just, he, the, our conversations were tremendous. And I know one of the members I'm, I'm particularly close to who was intimately involved in Stricker Street has had a lot of conversations with um, some some Marines, combat Marines on our job. And I know that has helped him tremendously. And, you know, when it comes to the challenges of these incidents, it's all about being there for each other and helping each other get over up and over the hump. Yeah, I appreciate all of that insight. One of the points that Jimmy Mack likes to make, uh, he's quite articulate about it, but he will make commonly is that like, some of this we've probably borrowed from Sebastian Younger and his important work in, in tribe. You build a team or you, you build a tribe not only to increase the likelihood that you're going to compete and compete at the highest level and increase the, the odds that you you win despite the challenges, but ultimately you're building a, a tribe and team um, that's going to be able to sustain and absorb loss, perhaps even catastrophic loss in instances where you where you you know you compete to win and unfortunately for whatever reason or for whatever reasons you uh you you lose but these these experiences that you know they're they're uh they're formidable they're formative and they're they're truly life-changing i think one of the points that you you made kind of implicitly was that uh you know at some point along the way every single one of us who endures something like this whether it be in combat fire service, you know, a, a loss at, of someone that we love it at home. I think the most critical decision point is that moment where we really decide whether we're going to be a victim of, of what's transpired or we're, we're going to be a survivor. I couldn't agree with that anymore. And, uh, you know, it actually goes back to COVID. My wife and I made the decision when COVID all began and the shutdowns began and every, you know, the world kind of, began falling apart. We had a, a long conversation about this and we said, you know, exactly what you just said, you know, we can let this make us or break us. We can get better during this time and we can work on our, our all of the things that we know will make us better or, you know, we can just fall victim to this and, and use it as an excuse to not do anything. And after, after the Stricker Street fire, I adopted the same mentality and, and I know several people did within our department that were intimately involved. You know, we can get better. We can let this make us or break us type of thing. And, you know, unfortunately, the one thing that we want more than anything would be to bring them back. But that's not an option. So what do we do? We have to dig into discipline. We have to get better. And we have to try to help each other get better every step of the way so that when we inevitably find ourselves in that position again, which unfortunately we did a short period later, hopefully it would have a, a better outcome. And unfortunately you can't control certain parts of that circumstance and we couldn't control it on the next 
fire as well. We couldn't control a lot of the circumstance that we were up against that day, but we could control how we respond and how we, how we respond as a membership is what's the most important thing. And the most, like I said, the most important thing that we have is to go to fires and to prepare for the worst in those fires. You know, we, we always say prepare for the worst and hope for the best, but then conversely, everybody will say, and you know, in another conversation, they'll say, well, hope isn't a good plan. So, you know, that kind of puts us at a, at a bit of an impasse, doesn't it? But you have to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And these incidents, learning from these incidents and it trying to improve us from these incidents is how we make sure that those members did not die in vain. And uh, these guys don't get to go home to their families. You know, Kelsey doesn't get to go home to her husband and her stepdaughter. Kenny doesn't see his fiance. Paul doesn't get to see his wife and daughter. And conversely, Rodney Pitts doesn't get to see his family. Dylan Ronaldo was engaged to be married. You know, these guys don't get to go home to their families. And the way that we honor them is through rigorous training and through making sure that we learn from whatever was done on those fire grounds to make us a little bit better because there's mistakes on every fire ground. The difference was that the mistake that I made on the fire ground yesterday didn't kill me. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everybody makes a mistake every fire they go to at least one. And if they tell you otherwise, then they're full of crap. Yeah, I think it was That's Gonzalez. It was Lawrence Gonzalez, you know, had written Deep Survival, or somebody like Gonzalez who, who defined his experiences, the, the, the guy or gal who's gotten away with doing the wrong thing um, or making a mistake more times than anyone, anyone else. He somehow framed experience in those terms, and it, it, there's certainly some merit to that. But one of the points that I, I think you also make that's, that's really valid, and you're speaking about this, you know, on a, on a somewhat of an intimate and personal level from experience, these events as traumatic, as catastrophic, as difficult as they are with the right types of people who, who kind of commit to that survivor over victim path, these events are some of the greatest catalysts for growth, you know, not, not only in our, in our individual lives, but within our units, our, our teams and our organizations. And, you know, as it relates to being a catalyst, the, the Mayday collapse at operation at, at Stricker Street was in fact a catalyst for the Baltimore City Fire Department to develop and implement an advanced firefighter removal course where members work to locate, package, and remove firefighters in distress, all while being subjected to heightened physical and mental stress. Uh, the course was on some level or to some extent modeled after the FDNY's course, which was created following 9-11 uh, and the heavy losses that the special operations units had experienced. But would you be willing to share some insight into how you and several other BCFD members have brought a really important, rigorous, and perhaps most of all, ambitious training course to fruition in a department that is, is not resource uh, rich? So after Stricker Street, the New York City Fire Department reached out to us. They were so gracious and, and, and giving with how much they offered. And one of the things that they had offered us was uh, to come up and take the advanced firefighter removal course through the Special Operations Command and 
it took it, you know it took a lot of heavy lifting but the team that went up wound up up there going through the course like you mentioned and basically like you said modeling it after their course but catering it to our incidents to the baltimore city fire department's incidents almost exclusively now there are some things that you know, we talk about um we talk about the colorado street fire in philadelphia because of the similarities of philadelphia and baltimore and we talk about we, we briefly talk about black sunday and and you know we do talk about other line of duty deaths that, that weren't just in our agency but that could very easily happen there so basically the, the first thing i'd be remiss not to mention is the team that developed this are some of the most passionate people that i've ever met for the fire service they are true leaders and just having them having them in our department is it's a blessing i mean these guys work night and day they rarely you know they'll work without compensation they've spent their own money on a lot of things that are that are a part of this props tools things like that things that would take a long time to get if we had to go through the channels and you know we don't have the time we have to build this now so originally we were going to take the course just on our own and we wound up finding quite a bit of support more support than we had anticipated from our administration to go and take this course we then had applied for an AFG grant, which is allowing us to currently put the course on in different iterations. And we actually, on the eighth, we will start another class, a four-day class. And this team working together has been, you know, you mentioned the tribe and, and that tribe preparing each other for loss, but furthermore, being able to pick each other up. And when the times get tough and the bureaucracies get in the way, and, you know, it, it's still there's still heavy lifting to be done because the course is in such an elementary developmental stage. It's the tribe that keeps each other balanced. You know, if I'm low, this one picks up the slack. And if he's low, I pick up the slack, you know, and fighting, we're constantly fighting to make sure that, that we keep that rigorous training at an appropriate level. We got together, we researched, we divided up the different incidents this one took Macon Street, this one took Stricker Street, this one took Loretta Avenue, the different line of duty deaths that we went through. And of course, you can't, we can't do all of them, but we went on the ones that were unique and ones that we thought, okay, if, if we were going to have another incident today, which, one of, which ones do you think would be the most appropriate that are not just the same incidents over and over and over again? So... Macon Street, for example, um, Alan Roberts, he was trapped behind a door in, a, in the vestibule of a row home. And so we had them, we researched it and we would have a team on each one and we would research it. And then we had guys that were just, just handling the props. And as they would go through the props, we would have the people who were researching the case study, talk to the people who were just doing the props and those people you know, we would get them the dimensions, we would tell them this is what happened. And they're like mad scientists, you know, I, I think I need to have them come do renovations on my house. I can't afford them, though. They are creative, they come up with these things. And, you know, you have to kind of let the members do a bottom up approach. And that's what we did. And these guys, you know, like I said, I call them mad scientists, they are passionate, they are dedicated, and they are intense. And 
if there's definitely people you want developing a course when it comes to these things, it's this team of men. Yeah, and I love that you used the word bottom-up infants more recently. And I, I share with a group of leaders that I, I think what you guys have done with this initiative and, and, and a few others is, is deserving of being a Harvard Business School case study. But the reason they won't use it at a place like Harvard Business School is because it, it was truly organic. It really came from the, from the bottom up. And eventually along the way, like you guys were going to make this happen, whether you had support from the top or, or not. Ideally, it was favorable to have support from the top. And eventually you gain that. And that was, uh, that, that was significant. And hopefully that's going to allow this, this program, this effort to sustain itself. But to watch, you know, several of you, and, and on some levels, is it fair to say that there was almost like a thera therapeutic element to this initiative in this effort? Yes and no. Um, I definitely think it was therapeutic for a lot of us to be a part of it. Quite frankly, I, I don't really care for doing the, the final evolution is based on Stricker Street. And uh, I, I don't really care for doing that because it, it just crops up a lot, which is my own thing. And I know a couple guys feel that way, but it's too important to let your own emotions get in the way. And that's the mentality that all of us have when it comes to these things. Like, you know, we're talking about, we're, we're, we're up here talking about our friends who we've lost and we're up here reliving certain things. And we're up here just con you know, you spend the whole week talking about how firefighters die or how they died. But the important thing, and again, I keep going back to the mission focused uh, aspect of things. The important thing that we all remind each other of when times get a little hard and, you know, the brotherhood that's coming from this, the, mor the um, morality behind doing the right thing behind our, the loss of members, whether we knew them or not, you know, I, I mentioned Alan Roberts, you know, I, I don't know. I've never, I'd never met Alan Roberts. He, he passed before I got on the job. Nelson Taylor is one of the firefighters that we research and, you know, his fire was in November of 1986. I was one year, so one year old. Um, but it still doesn't help to talk about, to, to focus on these things for an entire week. That being said, it still makes you feel like you're making a positive, you're, you're having a positive influence on these members and having the feedback that we get from the members is really where, where we see that come to fruition and where, you know, these guys come out and they're skeptical. They're like, you know what, I mean, come on, what are we going to do out here really? And they leave with such a huge sense of morale and the biggest um, takeaway from it is, you know, all of the lessons, all of the, the fires that we discuss were losses. You're going to have wins and losses. That's life. But these fires, you know, we felt the losses of, we couldn't get, we couldn't get the mission done. Right. And I think all firefighters are, most firefighters are type A personality. They don't like to lose whether it's in the, in the small scheme of things, they want to be in the front of the building or it's in the large scheme of things where we can't bring a brother or sister home, but we give them the win surrounding this. And I think that that mental, equating that mentally to a win helps to heal the members who are doing the evolution as well and seeing these members and how they progress throughout the week as, as 
teams and as as members of the department and how you see their efficiencies grow, whether they come in as, at an elementary stage or an advanced stage is tremendous. And that that's really what it's all about. It's all about remembering, making sure our members did not die in vain and, you know, one bite at a time, just like uh, Captain Whitehead always says, how do you eat an elephant? You know, one bite at a time, you're seeing them one step, one step at a time, get a little bit better. And for the record, they're, they teach us a ton of stuff too, because they're stronger personalities and they're intense members who usually take it, the class and our small experience of it. So they they won't hesitate to pull you know me off to the side and say, have you thought about doing it this way? And we go over it and it's like, wow, man, this really works. And then, you know, it gives us a lot to think about too. We keep a little notebook or we have to, we have to keep notes of all of the important bullet points. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think you, you and I've talked about this at length on numerous occasions over the years, but oftentimes the fire service kind of frames outcomes not kind of, but does frame outcomes in a very binary fashion. If we lose somebody, it goes in a red file cabinet. If if uh, no one is seriously injured or, or killed in a fire operation and the outcome is overwhelmingly favorable, it goes in the in the green file cabinet. Oftentimes when we train, we're only reaching into the red file cabinet. Fires that wind up in the green file cabinet get very little, if any, if any scrutiny, and oftentimes with the best of intentions, but probably in very counterproductive fashion, particularly from a human performance, you know, psychological perspective, we're, we only equip folks with red, red file cabinet experiences, right? Which exactly, you know, probably has un, unintended effects or second order order effects. But I think, I think one of the things that you really nicely articulated about the, the course is that even when you're exploring or you're having folks experience kind of a, of a red file cabinet fire, you know, scenario or, or simulated experience that there's still, there's still a considerable opportunities to equip them with green, you know, even call them mic micro files, right? Instances where they're able to kind of generate wins and increase the likelihood that they're going to compete and ultimately increase the likelihood that should they ever encounter one of these events, that, that they're going to be in a better position to increase the likelihood that they they have a catastrophe. And even if they don't walk away from the experience, knowing that they were as, as well prepared as they, as they could have been and that they, they gave all man and they left it all out. Right. Yeah. I mean, after a, a major incident, right. A red, you know, a red file incident, like you're saying, the worst thing that you can have as a reactionary response is like to kind of freeze and say like, not again, but what we're trying to do is give them that, like that mentality, like we, we can do this. You know, it, it comes down to all, all of the basic principles of that you talk about on a regular basis, right? The self-talk. And we, we start with a, an MPI portion for mental performance in the beginning of the week. And we tell them like, look, these are all the things that, are going to get you through this. And it's the self-talk, the visualization, the, like you said, the, the green and red file cabinets, you know, to understand that this, this was predicated off of the red file. We're trying to turn it into a green file. We're trying to make this into something where if you're in this position again, you're not going to think not again. And you're, you're going to think like we, I've overcome this before, you know, you're putting it in that file cabinet, you're putting it, you're making that Rolodex more relevant. And, 
again, that, that's how you remember. That's how you make sure that these members didn't die in vain because their, their families, more importantly, you know, they've made the sacrifice, but I often say, you know, the, the easy part was the, the guys who, the guys who we lost, you know, their part is over. They've, they've been lost. The, the hard part is the people who are still here and, and are grieving and their families who are now have completely lost a, a major pillar in their life. And we have to make sure that we're honoring them as well as the, the fallen firefighters. And that's how we do it by, by turning these into green file cabinets, as you said. Yeah. I can't overstate how inspirational and exemplary the, the work that you guys have done or organically, not, not waiting for the department to come to you with resources and a, and a plan because you possibly waiting a long time, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe forever. Not not falling prey to to the victimhood, which is often incentivized in in modern society, but saying, "Hey, you know, despite all that we have working against this, what do we have going for us?" And and that's the commitment you guys have to each other, and quite frankly, love for love for your profession, love for the mission, and and love for each other. It, it really, you know, I can't overstate what what an inspirational and and powerful. Uh, example you guys have set for for the country like when folks say well we don't have enough of this like folks would point them to what the work that you guys have done done together so I appreciate you sharing that so I'd, I'd like to transition and close out the conversation by kind of moving away from the fire floor or fire ground and, and take a few minutes to explore your life leadership responsibilities away from work you're an active father of two young active sons who, who you referenced earlier you talked about some of some of the adventures uh, that you guys tackle as a family. What what sort of philosophy have you adopted as a dad? That's a loaded question. Um, you know, my kids are very active, and uh, I don't know where they get it from, but they love to see pe- they love to see what makes people tick. That being said, I try to just make sure that they understand the importance of integrity and hard work, and. You know, I make them recite the golden rule on a regular basis, right? You treat others the way that you want to be treated. And we had a conversation this morning as I was driving to school about how people will always remember how you made them feel. And, you know, I'm not perfect by any means. And I, I miss the mark on a regular basis. But if I can just make them grow up to be good men who value integrity and, and have good morals, then uh, then I've, I've done my job. And it's not always easy, but I just try to be there for them. And I was lucky that I, you know, my father was there for me. He taught me the same things. And just societally, as we progress, you know, you just have to be a little less rough around the edges than the generation before you, because that's the natural progression of things. So, you know, I could go on and on about the stories about my father, but I don't think this is the, you know, we'll, we'll have that conversation after because I'm, you're, I got some good ones that'll make you definitely laugh. He, he's a he's a character, and I, I try to emulate him in a lot of ways when it comes to how I father my sons. Yeah, you've uh, you've been blessed for for sure. So you just recently moved your family from the Eastern Shore to rural Baltimore County. Would you be willing to share the impetus for the move and what life looks like at present and in the near future for the Tricarico family? So we're in boxes. I mean, I'm looking at boxes all over the house, but 
So we moved from the Eastern shore. We lived in a, a very beautiful area, uh, Ken Island. And it was very rural when we moved there, but we lived, we had a small plot of land and, and my parents and my wife and I, we got together and they were developing the area a lot. It was, you know, very obvious to the population growth. And we said, let's buy a piece of land and make a family compound and try to, you know, make something that, that will help the generational wealth of our family. And so we moved up, like you said, to Baltimore County. And we have a considerable piece of land up here now where my parents are going to build a house on the other side of the property. And they're just beginning that today. And my wife and I are renovating a farmhouse, which is something that we've talked about almost our entire relationship. Um, is living out in this type of atmosphere where, you know, we have the space to let our kids be be boys and our uh, let our kids be a little wild. And more importantly, something that we can leave them, something that that they can have when we go and you know when i as i as we all get older and die you know i don't want my kids to look at it as like well you know i'm just gonna sell the house sell all the stuff in it and get rid of it and they might do that that's fine but uh, our hope and our dream is that they'll look at it and they'll say like i'm gonna keep mom and dad's farm alive you know and right now being that i grew up in suffolk county and my wife grew up in montgomery county maryland we don't know the first thing about farming. So we're going to learn, you know, it'll be a good, a good uh, opportunity for growth. Yeah. You're definitely going to be outside your, your, your comfort zone, but uh, it sounds like you're, you're excited about it. Livestock. We don't have any real livestock yet. We have some chickens. Uh, we're, we're going back and forth about what we're going to get, but we're going to, we're just going to kind of learn the lay of the land here for the first uh, six months to a year. And I have luckily being that we're in Maryland, I have a lot of friends who, own farms and own livestock and they're willing to give me all kinds of advice and kind of watch this uh sitcom if you will unfold awesome man very excited for for your family is the fire service on your on, on your son's radar so uh, a funny story about that my oldest is he's a, a strong personality and we were doing something where we were cutting we were going through the city and i had to stop at the firehouse to drop something off along the way and as we're approaching the firehouse, he, he says to me, he's, he's almost 10. And he says, you know, dad, I really feel like you're pushing me to be a firefighter and I want to make my own decisions. And I'm, I kind of smiled. I said, all right, man, you know, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do when it comes to that. You can be whoever you want to be as you grow up. So we're in the firehouse and they get a run for a box. And uh, he sees like the commotion, you know, they all, every, the engine and truck, everybody gets on and, and they, they peel out and, they, they leave in a hurry and the doors go back down. As soon as the doors go back down and, and everything's just kind of like resettling, he's like, he looked at me and he said, you know, dad, I think I want to be a firefighter after all. And I was like, yeah, man. I mean, I didn't know anything about the fire department. You know, I was already going to work with my dad when I was his age. So I knew all about that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'd already been responding in the front seat. They were letting me work the siren. <laughs> so my youngest is definitely, he's already like, can we go to the firehouse? He wants to go and he wants to come to work with me. And they're, they're both upset now that they've learned that at their ages, I was going to work with, with my father. They want to come to work with me. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. You know, sorry. Yeah, those days, those days are long gone. Unfortunately, they're, they're one generation removed from that experience. But, and for uh, the record, you know, I, I, w I would, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, but you know, you had, the, you made the trek from, 
Suffolk County into the South Bronx, as you uh, had shared, a pretty eye-opening experience, particularly at a young age, um, to see that not everyone lived, you know, the same way that you and your family did. And I'm I'm sure it's equally eye-opening and enlightening for your your young boys to make the trek into the west side of Baltimore and to see that, you know, folks live differently than they do on the eastern shore on Kent Island or in, you know, northern rural Baltimore County. Yeah, and it's an important thing to to understand. You know, my father, I can remember on many Christmases, my father would tell me, you know, just remember, there's kids who didn't get presents today. You know, there's there's kids in the South Bronx or in Brooklyn or you know wherever he was working at the time. I you know, I want you guys to remember that there's families who don't have all the stuff that you are getting today, and and it, it is eye opening and, and it makes you very grateful for what you have and it makes you appreciate the value of hard work. You know, because we weren't we weren't well to do until uh, until my father started getting promoted, and you know we we didn't have a lot. He worked several jobs, and then that's what what firefighters did. Everything from driving a taxi to security to construction. At that time, in our family, that's how we spent time with my father. You know, he didn't let us yeah. go with the cab, though. You know, driving the taxi overnight, <laughs> he wouldn't let us do that. <laughs> Well, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation this morning, but I'd like to wrap up our conversation with a quick rapid fire. So your favorite book? There's a lot. I'm going to go with uh, Culture Code or Deep Survival. Okay. So Dan Coyle or Lawrence Gonzalez. I like it. Uh, favorite workout? Got to be Murph, man. Okay. The uh, CrossFit workout, workout of the day that honors Navy SEAL Lieutenant Michael Murphy and yeah, folks customarily do it on Memorial Day, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I mean, it's a great workout. I think it's applicable to what we do. It's a beatdown, and Mike Murphy grew up um, about ten minutes from me. So you go, you know, the exit on the, the the way I explain it is when you get off the expressway, you make a left to go to my town, you make a right to go to his, and uh, so I've always felt like it was important to to do it and. For a while, we were doing it. Well, I was doing it with a group of people, like once a month, and I think it, I think I would die if I did that now. But yeah, and he, Mike Murphy, similar to yourself, not only did he grow up in Suffolk, but he too had had buffed in in a couple of uh, New York City firehouses. Yeah, what is it? Uh, I, I forget the company. There's a company in the Bronx that, that wears his patch or, or his unit wears their patch or something like that. Yeah, I think he might have been wearing the patch of fifty three and forty three. In, in Spanish Harlem, okay, yeah, in country. Uh, so out of curiosity, do do you do it weighted or not weighted? Weighted. Wow, impressive. All right, so favorite favorite music genre when working out? It all depends on the mood, man. But I'm a '90s kid from Suffolk County, so probably like '90s rap. '90s rap, you know. All right. How do you tell you're from Suffolk County? You listen to '90s rap. <laughs> <laughs> favorite favorite podcast uh again it's all circumstantial uh i like art of manliness um i like i like to listen to certain episodes of getting salty because they it reminds me of, of the good times on the job you know when morale is low obviously i'm partial to leadership under fire i could go on and on but it kind of depends on how the mood is hitting you okay favorite historic non-fire service leader you're going to think this is funny. Um, uh, 
so obviously I like reading a lot of uh, general patents principles. Um, he, you know, obviously a very stern leader. It, it's not as applicable. Some of the things aren't as applicable now, but uh, I do like it. I liked his leadership styles. Um, kind of a men come first type of situation. But you're going to laugh at this. Uh, Derek Jeter was one of the people I thought of. You know, the guy found himself as the captain of the New York Yankees, the captain of the winningest team in baseball. And he kept himself out of controversy and focused on the mission of winning for the entire time. And I mean, you know, like I said, I'm partial because I'm a Yankees fan, but. Yeah, exemplary, quiet, professional, team player, consummate professional. I mean, we talk about discipline and somebody who was extraordinarily deliberate and methodical in, in what they put in their body, what they put in their mind, everything they did, and, and mm -hmm. the consistency, like the entire entire career spent playing under the limelight and under the heightened scrutiny that is playing here in New York. But, but uh, that one certainly resonates with me. And then finally, favorite historic fire service leader. That's a tough one. Um, I've been blessed with being exposed to a lot of people in the fire service, people that I consider absolute giants. And I have like a whole list of people that I could name, you know, I don't know if they're historic, but I always, I look at certain people in the fire service and I've always thought like, that's the type of guy, you know, like, like that's the type of guy I would like to be like in some capacity. And, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention my father right out of the gate. You know, he's not a perfect man by any means. Nobody is, but my father is someone that uh, I very often will think like, what would he do in this situation? And, you know, I'd be remiss not to say that, but like, you know, Mickey Conboy, Tony Kelleher from D.C., Oriel Palmer, Patty Brown, these these guys that um, and all for different circumstances, you know, some with us, some not that have done things and made sacrifices that. Uh, that have helped build the fire service or have made a difference when they were under extreme duress, you know like Patty Brown sending guys over the side of the apparatus or the way that he was killed in, in the trade center or Oriel Palmer being able to reach the top floor or just a guy, like I said, like Mickey Conboy, who has been a part of so many incidents and could very easily just, uh, could very easily just take a step back, but he doesn't He's still involved and he's still making sure that he's there and, and teaching the members. And, and, you know, I mean, I could go on and on about all these guys, you know, different people in the fire service that, is my favorite, you know, historic leader, but I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe ben Franklin, didn't he get it started? Should I just say Ben Franklin? <laughs> <laughs> he did, but I like where he went with it. And uh, I, I love that you, you ended with uh, kind of this, this notion or theme of, of gratitude, you know, like how, how blessed are we, right, my friend? Oh, I mean, just sitting here having this conversation. I mean, it, it's excellent. And, uh, it's all about exposure. It's all about learning. And, and every person you come across is going to give you some sort of lesson, whether it be good or bad. And I consider myself extremely blessed to be surrounded by good men and women and uh, to have had that almost my entire life, whether I realized it or not in the moment. Yeah, we're, we're truly blessed. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We covered a lot of ground and on some of the topics we probably only scratched the surface, but I, I finished the conversation really excited about doing two things in particular. 
One is going to play with my kids today and taking them on an adventure. And two is my next night tour at work. Okay, can't wait to get back to work. And I appreciate your uh, your willingness to share. And uh, you know, I appreciate your uh, your friendship. So with that, thanks, Tristan. Thank you, Jason. I'm, I'm truly honored to be a part of this. Thank you. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.